Badges? We don't need no stinking badges. Potter stinks badges, on the other hand. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for propagandists. Now, why did you decide to enter the tournament, Harry? I didn't, said Harry. I don't know how my name got into the Goblet of Fire. I didn't put it there. Come now, Harry. There's no need to be scared of getting into trouble. We all know you shouldn't really have entered at all, but don't worry about it. Our readers love a rebel. How do you feel about the tasks ahead? Excited? Nervous? I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Hey! Hey, I'm feeling pretty hyped for this episode. Yeah, guys, this one's a doozy. These chapters are bonkers. Yeah, J.K. Rowling is wilding out. The chapters in question are The Four Champions and The Weighing of the Wands. We are, of course, still reading Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fail, more like. <laughs> Lol. Harry Potter and the shitty goblet that's bad at its job. <laughs> We're going to talk even more about how shitty the goblet is. As you can tell, this podcast will contain cursing and multiple spoilers. It will also contain some adult themes. This week's adult themes are diplomatic crises, backlash culture, attack ads, fake news, and long, hard wands. Alex, do you have anything to say for yourself? Yes, we have a correction this week because we... We? <laughs> we. Because this podcast adheres to strict ethical standards in Harry Potter journalism. Last week, I incorrectly gendered Hedwig... Hedwig is not a he. Hedwig is a female. So Hedwig is a she. Uh, usually I get that one right, I feel like. But uh, I don't know how I messed that one up. I, I mean, I knew that, but... Yeah, you're oh, just talking uh, fast. It's fine. You know, yeah. Hedwig's a, Hedwig's a lady. Do you want to also tell us what happened this week? Yes. In this week's chapters, Harry has just been selected as the fourth Hogwarts champion to everyone's surprise. Nobody really claps. Everybody is mostly thinking WTF. Harry joins the other champions in... Where are they in the castle again? They're, they're like, in like some anteroom. They're in, yeah, they're in an anteroom with like a nice fire that they're all warming themselves around because Hogwarts is a lot of things, but it's always cozy as fuck. Except the kind of dank parts of it. I don't know. You know, like it, there's a lot of cozy places. Uh, in Hogwarts. Uh, coziness aside, Harry is very uncomfortable. Harry's selection as the fourth champion triggers a full-on international incident with the headmasters of Bobiton and Durmstrang threatening to pull out of the Triwizard Tournament because they think that after all their careful negotiating, Dumbledore and Hogwarts are trying to pull one over on them by giving themselves an extra champion. For starters, Everybody thinks Harry put his name in the goblet. Harry's like, no, I didn't do that. It wasn't me. Cue the shaggy music. Didn't you uh, put me in the goblet? Gob- <laughs> it wasn't me. me. It wasn't me. Except it actually wasn't Harry. Dumbledore very calmly asks Harry if he put his name in the goblet. Harry's like, no, 
There's a lot of tense discussion about how someone could have fooled the goblet. Mad-Eye Moody dramatically walks in and is like, Yo, only a real insane badass wizard could have tricked this goblet into spitting out a fourth name. Wonder who that could be? <laughs> Eventually it's decided that somebody confunded the goblet to think there was a fourth school and entered Harry only under the fourth school. Everybody's like, what should we do now? Barty Crouch is like, for one thing, acting real sketchy, but then says we have to follow the rules no matter how insane and nonsensical they are, so it's a binding magical contract. Harry has to compete. Also, Mad-Eye Moody says somebody probs entered Harry because they're trying to kill him. Again, who could wonder be, who yeah, that who could be. Who could be trying to kill Harry Potter? Oh, meanwhile... Ludo Bagman is, like, kind of psyched by all of this. He thinks it's real dramatic and fun. He just hosts a reality show. He'd actually be pretty good at that. <laughs> Dumbledore says, well, that settles that. Who wants a nightcap? Harry heads back to the common room. Gryffindor is super hella fucking psyched. They throw one of the crazy all-night non-alcoholic parties that they sometimes have after big Gryffindor events. Harry is really bewildered, kind of freaked out that he's the center of an assassination plot, really wants to go to bed, either that or find Ron and Hermione to talk this all out. When he does head up to his bedroom, he finds Ron there, who seems to be... Ron is just real pissed at Harry. He thinks he's entered his name in the Goblet of Fire and hasn't told him. There are some tensions there. The next morning... Harry talks with Hermione. Hermione's like, can't you see? Ron is jealous. You're always the center of attention. You're the boy who lived. Uh, they go on a walk. Harry throws some toast into the lake, which is then eaten by the gigantic squid. There are now multiple scenes of just odd toast consumption in this book. <laughs> I forgot about Amos yeah, Diggory. So Toast gets eaten in very strange ways in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. <laughs> everything, everything happens in this book. There's like exploding alien butts. Uh, <laughs> Multiple transported ways transported to eat. toast. Squids eating toast. It, this book is insane. What doesn't this book have? Nothing. Um, opals. <laughs> <laughs> very large opals. Harry sends a very terse letter to Sirius, letting him know that he's been selected as the fourth Triwizard Champion, and really including no other relevant information. Uh, also, Hedwig, who is a female owl, is pissed at Harry too, because he uses a school owl to send this letter to Sirius. And because bitches be trippin'. Harry has one of his worst weeks at school since everybody thought he was controlling a lizard monster to paralyze people. <laughs> The Harry, the, the Harry Gryffindor backlash is in full effect. Hufflepuff's pissed because Harry stole their glory. The Ravenclaws are pissed because um, I, they think what's happening is really illogical. I don't know why they're mad exactly. But, you know, the Gryffindor is kind, kind of wins everything. Gryffindor are the Yankees of Hogwarts. Ravenclaws think it's unfair, and they're right. Yeah, they're right. Ravenclaws are like, this is not how it's done. Let's think about this rationally. Draco Malfoy makes sassy badges for everyone that says Potter stinks. Harry and Draco okay, wait, almost have a duel. Can I just briefly interrupt yeah. you on that? That is the dumbest slogan in the universe. Yeah, but it gets the point. But support Cedric Diggory, the real Hogwarts champion. Like, that's that's a killer attack ad. Like, that's really well done. And then Potter stinks is, like, really fucking lame. Yeah, but they, they press the button and then it changes to Potter stinks. So it's like the, the like... 
Can it just say Potter sucks? Chaser. That is something about stinks, though. Ah, okay. Go on. I don't know. I'm Draco Malfoy, and I approve this message. <laughs> Harry and Draco get into a little schoolyard duel, but their curses backfire and hit Hermione and, I think, Goyle. Hermione gets, like, crazy long beaver teeth from it. Snape is terrible to Hermione and says he can't tell any difference. Harry gets pulled out of potions class, uh, which is another horrible, embarrassing experience because everybody's already pissed at him for being a Triwizard Champion. Harry gets pulled out of potions class for photos with the other Triwizard Champions and a ceremony called the Wang of the Wand. A journalist for the Daily Prophet named Rita Skeeter is there and pulls Harry into a broom cupboard. Nothing good ever happens to Harry in cupboards, basically. <laughs> she uh, has some really aggressive questioning of Harry. She's wearing scary magenta robes and has like nutty fingernails. And she's using a quill that is Harry can see is like writing embellishments. Anyway, Rita Skeeter seems like trouble. Uh, Mr. Ollivander is back. He has all the champions whip out their wands so that they can be measured. Harry's is worried about how his measures up up against uh, Cedric's and Victor Crumb's and I guess Fleur Delacour as well. Ollivander makes some birds with Crumb's thick wand, admires Harry's wand because it's like his fave ever. Weirdly, Fleur's wand is made out of her grandmother's hair. Yeah, that's a... That's a strange moment. It's kind of weird, but it's also kind of beautiful. Yeah, family heirloom. Yeah, there's something really sweet about it. People used to wear, like, locks of their loved one's hair in, like, lockets. So why not put it in your wand? And then... she was magic ass. Yeah, and then, but Mr. Ollivander's like, why don't you use Vila hair because it makes the wands temperamental. Yeah, so fucking sexist. (laughs) So, Ollivander, kind of old school. Sirius gets back in touch with Harry later. He gets a Harry gets a letter from Sirius. Sirius arranges for them to have a fireside chat in the not even a fireside chat, an in the fire chat <laughs> in the Gryffindor common room. 2 a.m. 2 a.m. later. At a date later, I think in November. I don't recall off the top of my head. The date's not important. We will get there. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. A lot happens in this week's chapters. It's just like so much. It's so much. So the first thing that's bullshit is this fucking cup. Yeah, hashtag goblet fail. It's so broken. It's like, I don't know. I I can't even think of a simile. I don't know. We beat up on the goblet last time, but it kind of deserves more. It's just like... It's fucking buggy. Yeah. Like, it's like the one piece of goblet code you feel like they would have, like, made sure was airtight has this, like, huge fucking bug where it's just like, oh, I guess you can just enter infinite schools. (laughs) In that case, if you can just put someone else's name in, couldn't any of the students just given their names to an older student? Well, that's what Dumbledore asks Harry. Dumbledore's like, "Did you give your name to another student to an older student to put it in?" And that seems like it's like, like what? That's you, an option. You drew an age. You did all this crazy, powerful magic to draw an age line, and you can't stop somebody else from just putting a name in the goblet. It's, it seems like you should only be able to enter your own name, not someone else's. Yeah, and I, I guess the goblet is confunded. 
or whatever. I didn't even realize you could perform a confundus charm on, on an, an actual inanimate object. inanimate object. But that also doesn't make sense. It well, doesn't I don't, have a it makes a, the, the, the goblet has like some kind of magical intelligence, but I, I, I don't know. This is so... It's just such a broken system. It's really, it's really unsatisfying, and it's so unsatisfying that it makes the whole plot of the book kind of rickety. It's, it's weird that this, this dumbass goblet is the fulcrum that the whole book turns on, well, where it's it a title, title, where it's the title of the book. What do you think she's trying to do here? It, it just seems like this Rube Goldberg machine to propel the plot forward, and it just seems like there are so many other ways you could have written this that would be a little more satisfying. Like, I like the idea of the goblet, this epic goblet selecting champions. And Harry makes sense as a champion because, well, for one thing, he's stabbed a fucking basilisk in the face. Like, it would be interesting if the goblet was like, oh, there's four champions because, I don't know, Harry's like so special or whatever that there has to be four champions. I don't know, but maybe not. I don't know. It's no, it's like, just, it's dumb. It's like, the fact that it hinges on like a technicality is right. really it's, annoying. It's very strange. It's not elegant at all. And it's like kind of, yeah, it kind of creaks along. And in order to buy the rest of the plot, you have to just swallow that this like epic, ancient, incredibly valuable magical object is just broken it's really fucking stupid yeah and it is weird that they have to like create it's like a weird spreadsheet trick it is they create a new field yeah and they only put harry potter in it because maybe somebody else would have beaten harry potter by the in the cup i don't know it's yeah it's such a boring reason that he gets entered also i don't understand the thing where he has to compete yeah I like the idea of a binding magical contract where if your name is signed to something, I'm assuming unfathomably terrible things will happen to you if for some reason you don't fulfill your obligations. But I don't know. This is just another reason wizards need lawyers. Like, this contract is clearly not drawn up well. For one thing, shouldn't the contract itself be invalid since Harry didn't enter into it willingly? He didn't put his own name in the goblet. That seems... But there's no way to prove that because the goblet fucking blows. Didn't Doesn't it spit work at all. out his name on a piece of burned parchment? Like, we can do some handwriting analysis or yeah, something like that. that's true. Basic forensics. Yeah, no, they have none. They have no fucking CSI abilities whatsoever. Uh, there, there must be some, like, magical court where this can be appealed. Or, in order to keep things safe for Harry, since they've deduced that maybe this is a potential murder plot, they can just give Harry, like, lame challenges and then flunk him for them, no matter what. Like, there's lots of ways... There's lots of ways out of this. They don't have to be like, oh, okay, illegitimate fourth Hogwarts champion. We're going to give you a bad at, like, the most hardcore dragon we can find. Like, since you're in it, may as well go all the way. <laughs> that's such wizard logic, though. Like, right. that's, like, every turn in these books we've seen that that's, like, I mean, if nothing else, they go hard. I mean, it makes a little bit of sense because they are kind of obsessed with destiny and, oh, this must be happening for a reason, so therefore we have to... I go where the magic leads us. That's another thing that's like really medieval about them. Like their sort of frame of mind of like 
nothing is random like there's no such thing as chance like if something happened like it's like foreordained it's just very sort of like medieval religion to me yeah it's like not very rational like it's just not a really like strong like mental model for thinking about things so they're like oh if harry got picked he must have been supposed to get picked and it's like you just said yourself somebody fucking did this the stupidest hack ever <laughs> Like, it's not destiny, it's your cup is broken. There's also this weird moment where Ludo is like, oh, Barty, like, I don't know, what should we do? And poor imperialist Barty Crouch Sr. is like, well, it's in the rules. And everyone is like, yeah, cool, okay. Bagman wiped his round, boyish face with his handkerchief and looked at Mr. Crouch, who was standing outside the circle of the firelight, his face half hidden in shadow. He looked slightly eerie the half-darkness making him look much older, giving him an almost skull-like appearance. When he spoke, however, it was in his usual curt voice. We must follow the rules, and the rules state clearly that those people whose names come out of the Goblet of Fire are bound to compete in the tournament. Well, Barty knows the rule book back to front said Bagman, beaming and turning back to Karkaroff and Madame Maxime, as though the matter was now closed. That's all it takes, is for fucking Barty Crouch to just be like, them's the rules, and Ludo is like, yeah, cool, we're we're in. They should find another loophole, because Harry got in on a loophole. Yeah. If oh, there's well. one, there are many. It's just like, up there with the time-turner, where it's just so mind-bendingly stupid, that, like, even though the rest of this book is so fun and the tasks are amazing and, like, the whole thing, like, unwinds in just delightful madness, you're just like, okay, but why is his name in there? None of this is interesting or good. All right, but the time turner is at least a really fun, chat like, sequence of chapters. That's true. You know? This is so this is just, annoying. like, confusing. And boring. You know? It's like, oh, somebody put your name in. And I actually remember the first time I read this, I expected the magical payoff to be so much better. When he's like, oh, they must have put your name in under, like, a different school. I was like, that's fucking it? <laughs> it's not like, what I imagine is, like, the goblet is, like, all-seeing, and it, like, determined that Harry Potter, like, the chosen one, the boy who lived, is, yeah. like, the only person from Hogwarts who could, like, adequately be called a triwizard champion i mean it like makes, it's like his destiny yeah, picking harry makes sense it's, but the reason the way he's so picked annoying. is like oh we gotta move on this yeah. is our first topic <laughs> that is a, a goblet full of quibbles so yeah this is like central quibble of this whole it's the fucking title that's so lame yeah um okay so speaking of this insane plot device mad-eye moody slash Barty Crouch Jr. is in full Bond villain yeah, mode right now. He's just constantly explaining his evil scheme to everyone. He just like marches in with like a kathunk and he's like, somebody must have put his name in. Maybe they want to kill him. And everybody's <laughs> just like, uh, we hadn't even fucking thought of that until you brought it up. Is it you? Except nobody is actually like that because... I don't know, none of them are ever fucking thinking at all. So Mad-Eye comes in and just like mysteriously is the only one who's like, huh, I have an idea how they might have done this, point by point by point. And never does Dumbledore look at him and say, you have a suspiciously detailed account of what happened. Karkarov does. 
Imagining things, am I? growled Moody. Seeing things, eh? It was a skilled witch or wizard who put the boy's name in that goblet. Ah, what evidence is there of that? said Madame Maxime, throwing up her huge hands. Because they hoodwinked a very powerful magical object, said Moody. It would have needed an exceptionally strong confundus charm to bamboozle that goblet into forgetting that only three schools compete in the tournament. I'm guessing they submitted Potter's name under a fourth school to make sure he was the only one in his category. You seem to have given this a great deal of thought, Moody, said Karkaroff coldly, and a very ingenious theory it is. Though, of course, I heard you recently got it into your head that one of your birthday presents contained a cunningly disguised basilisk egg and smashed it to pieces before realizing it was a carriage clock. So you'll understand if we don't take you entirely seriously. There are those who turn innocent occasions to their advantage, Moody retorted in a menacing voice. It's my job to think the way dark wizards do, Karkaroff, as you ought to remember. Yo, that's true. Karkaroff says, you seem to have thought about this an awful lot, Mad-Eye. That is true. And the whole time we think Karkaroff's the bad guy and like accusing Mad-Eye, but it's, Karkaroff's like, this is very weirdly specific, yeah. bro. Mm-hmm. Mad-Eye Moody's writing like, if I did it, basically. Seriously. So I don't know. And he keeps doing that. He All throughout this book, he just kind of stalks into the room is like, what if this is what the bad guy is up to? So is Barty showboating? Or is he strategically confusing, like throwing people off the scent by kind of telling the truth, but also not? I feel like lately a thing we talk about a lot is like, it's not four-dimensional chess. Right. I feel like he's probably just showboating. Barty Crouch Jr. isn't a genius, like an evil genius. This is a pretty unelegant, stupid plan. He has to get this kid through <laughs> this entire tournament alive by dropping cryptic hints and like doing all this weird shit instead of just like fucking putting a port key in the hallway and just like zooming him right to the fucking graveyard or whatever. Yeah. Like he's putting on a show. And so he just wants to like every so often come in and like tell people a little bit about the show. He's like doing like a behind the scenes every so often. <laughs> I don't know that he's necessarily like trying to like throw them off the trail. I think that he's just like showing off. I guess the one thing he's doing is he's enjoying holding it right under their noses. Like I think that's fun for right. him. Where he's like I just explained literally every fucking thing that's happened so far and everybody's like Mad Eye's crazy. He thinks his dustbins are cursed. Yeah, I don't know. The whole Oedipus of this book is kind of rickety. It doesn't stop it from being fun, but it is... This is the messiest one. Mm -hmm. Okay, think about it. In this scene, you have Barty Crouch Sr., who is under the Imperious Curse. You have Mad-Eye Moody, who is polyjuiced Barty Crouch Jr. Like, you just... <laughs> there's so much going on in this scene that you have to, like, have so many plot details from so far forward in the book to like understand it all. And it's just this one scene that you're just like, this 
barely holds water. Like, this is too fucking complicated. And Karkaroff, who was, who was a, a Death, death eater, eater, and Snape, Snape who, who was, was a Death, death eater. eater. And, like, they both have these crazy vendettas against Mad-Eye, and also, like, Barty Crutch Jr. and Barty Crutch Sr. have this, like, freaky dynamic going on, like, in this scene. And then the fucking boy who lived is there, and he's, like, essentially ancillary to, like, all these fucking weird relationships. And, like, also Cedric gets murdered. Where is Hercule Perrault when you need him? This is, like, a bad Murder on the Orient Express plot. This is just, like, who could it be? <laughs> Except, like, it's nonsense. It's, like, way more nonsense than Agatha Christie would come up with. I'm sorry, we're, we're hating on Joe this. I mean, we're not hating on her. I do not think this plot is well-formed. No. I think the Mad-Eye-Barty thing, I'm like, it's growing on me a little bit. But the whole, like, ugh, it's a mess. We gotta move on again. We do, we do. What do you think about the fact that nobody believes Harry when he says he didn't put his name in the goblet? It's just weird because it's like nobody actually understands, like, what Harry's deal is. It's like, I think we talked about this in the first book where he's, like, famous in a vacuum, and everybody constantly forgets, like, what he's actually famous for. Right. I mean, everybody just finds it so far-fetched that maybe somebody's trying to hurt Harry, and you're just like, Jesus fucking Christ, are you guys kidding me? Who could possibly want to kill Harry? Maybe the evil genius who he murdered as a baby. (laughs) Like, Every fucking time Voldemort shows up at this school and people are like, no, that can't be right. Yeah. And every time Harry is like, "You, what do I have to say before people believe that I'm not paranoid I mean, and they, I'm not a fame whore. Someone is 100% all the way for my entire life literally out to get me. They should check every teacher's heads every year from now on to make sure Voldemort isn't like growing out the back of one. Well, the second he stopped growing out of the back of one, what, are they going to check every diary by stabbing it with a basilisk thing? Like, uh, all right. It's just you can't, you, you, each of these plots is insane, but at the same time, it's kind of like the TSA, where every time you're checking for, like, the last plot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, kind of back to the fame thing, she really does get at the short-term memory of the public, like, she really has a good understanding of that. The what-have-you-done-for-me-lately nature of fame. Nobody understands Harry in, like, his proper context ever. No. Including the grown-ups in his life, which is frustrating. And Dumbledore is kind of the only one who does, but the way in which he understands that context is so profoundly fucked up that we can't even, like, go there. Right, right. The other thing that's weird is, like, everybody being like, oh, but Harry's only a fourth year like he's not possibly qualified and it's like literally guys who killed the basilisk yeah who murdered quirrell with his (laughs) fire hands (laughs) you know who single-handedly drove off approximately one million dementors with a single patronus in his third fucking year like he's Fine. I guess that's kind of why it makes sense that maybe he put his name in bec- to other people. Obviously, we know that he didn't, but maybe I, Rita Skeeter kind of gets at this. Like, Rita Skeeter maybe, really has the best like psychological explanation of like, why he might have done yeah, it. Yeah, like maybe you're some kind of like crazy thrill seeker now. You seem to find yourself in these situations a lot, which is very blaming the victim, but 
Well, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's blaming the victim, but also, I mean, Snape isn't wrong when he says Harry is arrogant. Like, ha- doesn't have much regard for the rules. He doesn't. Well, I mean, but the reason Harry has no regard for the rules is the rules have never done shit for him. The right. rules have never kept him safe. The rules have never kept Voldemort from being his teacher. <laughs> the rules don't work for Harry Potter because nobody is thinking any steps ahead of the bad guys because they everybody fucking refuses to like acknowledge the existence of the bad guys. Yeah. I think Rita's like better point is she's like, maybe you're trying to prove something. And that mm. is true about Harry. Like she's actually really insightful when she says like, at some point, he has to like do increasingly like bonkers things to keep like living up to his like ever ballooning like reputation. The hat senses that in Harry right off the bat. The sorting hat says you have a thirst to prove yourself. Yeah. Well, and like in that way, like Harry's kind of like classic Slytherin because his ambition really is like unbounded. Um, Not so unbounded that he actually breaks the rules to try to put his name in the cup. Like, he thinks, yeah, that would be sick, but he doesn't really want to do that. But once he's in... Well, he's in to win. Right. That's, I guess, what I mean. Or at least survive. No, he's in to win. He, like, gets to a point where he's like, yo, what if I just fucking won this shit? (laughs) Um, Which, I guess you would get there. Anyway. So... Ron and Harry are having a falling out. Listen, said Harry, I didn't put my name in that goblet. Someone else must have done it. Ron raised his eyebrows. What would they do that for? I don't know, said Harry. He felt it would sound very melodramatic to say, to kill me. Ron's eyebrows rose so high that they were in danger of disappearing into his hair. It's okay, you know. You can tell me the truth, he said. If you don't want everyone else to know, fine, but I don't know why you're bothering to lie. You didn't get into trouble for it, did you? That friend of the fat ladies, that Violet, she's already told us all Dumbledore's letting you enter. A thousand galleons prize money, eh? And you don't have to do end-of-year tests, either. I didn't put my name in that goblet, said Harry, starting to feel angry. Yeah, okay said Ron in exactly the same sceptical tone as Cedric. Only you said this morning you'd have done it last night and no one would have seen you. I'm not stupid, you know. You're doing a really good impression of it, Harry snapped. Yeah, said Ron, and there was no trace of a grin, forced or otherwise, on his face now. You want to get to bed, Harry? I expect you'll need to be up early tomorrow for a photo call or something. Yeah, speaking of people, like, having a really hard time understanding Harry, let's talk about his best friend. The one person that Harry hopes will unconditionally understand what he's going through, or at least listen to him. I find this part of this book, like, absolutely gut-wrenching. Harry has so few sources of comfort in his life. And Ron is the first and most important one. I mean, and this happens like throughout the books, but to have Ron turn his back on Harry, it's just brutal to read. It's one of the better obstacles confronting our hero in the books because it feels the most real and it almost undoes everything in book seven. It almost screws up their attempts to thwart 
Voldemort, this yeah, tension. Their fucking camping uh, trip goes super south. I know. You're right. I mean, this is like, it's fun and really, okay, so we'll turn on a dime and talk about something that she does really beautifully. Yes, this, she understands friendships way, she does friendships way better than this whole, like, goblet nonsense. She's really good at, like, pulling apart the, like, different elements of, like, feeling really strongly about a person and, like, examining each possibility in different ways. Ron's admiration of Harry, like, can really turn on a dime in a way that, like, makes sense. As it does with Crumb, his hero worship of Crumb. Yeah. Which is, like, those are two totally different things, but they're kind of tangentially... Well, the thing that's related. interesting about Ron's reaction is, like, simultaneously, like, I'm I'm mad at Ron in this chapter because, like, I think you would have to be, like, pretty dense as Harry's close friend to not notice that Harry is freaked the fuck out. But the thing that Ron is sad about, and this makes a lot of sense, isn't, like, oh, you did this thing, but it's, like, wow, you didn't let me do it with you. Mm. So his feeling of betrayal stems from the fact that he thinks Harry figured out a way to like have this adventure and just like deliberately left him out of it because he like wanted to go it alone. And like I think one of Ron's deepest fears is that Harry doesn't need him. You know they've had all these like adventures where like Harry essentially goes it alone eventually. Like Harry in Ron's eyes I think is like able to really easily like strip away his like friends and loved ones and just like be the chosen one by himself. I know that they don't know that's what he is but you know the boy who lived by himself and I think that like hurts Ron in a way that Ron probably couldn't express. Right. But he's like really deeply afraid that like Harry doesn't need him or want him. Well he feels disposable at home. Right. Superfluous. And he doesn't want to feel like that with his best friend. But at the same time it's really stupid. Yeah, he's being an asshole. And he's like just not t- paying attention to like really obvious clues. This amazing thing that Hermione says that it's like, how is nobody else noticing this? She's like, all I had to do was look at your fucking face. You looked horrified. I could tell with my eyeballs and my brain that you didn't do it because you looked like you might faint. Well, once again, Hermione is the only character who's doing any emotional like work. Or paying any attention. I know Hermione's whole job in these books is just like explaining boys' feelings to them. She does tell Harry that he has to talk it through with Ron himself. No, she refuses to do the work for him, which I really admire. One thing about the like Ron-Harry thing is it's just like part of this like wider, like you said, this like huge wave of like Potter backlash. Yeah, which Potter slash Gryffindor backlash, I think. Which also rings really true because, yeah, Gryffindor. They're the house you love to hate. Gryffindor wins everything. Yeah, which is. You know, or they, well, Slytherin used to win everything, but now Gryffindor wins everything. So, of course, there's some pent up resentment there. And, you know, Gryffindor to the other houses, like, is Harry Potter. That's true. Yeah, no. He's the seeker. He's the most famous Gryffindor. He's the most famous student. I think the whole student body is like feelings about the two of them are kind of bound up in each other. Yeah. I think. I really do feel bad for Hufflepuff. Like Joe says, like they almost never get their time to shine. And like Cedric is a really strong, important, lovely, heroic figure. Yeah. And they, like, don't even get to bask in that because now this, like, super famous pipsqueak is much more important. 
Right. It's sad. Yeah. It's like kind of reminds me though of like the milkshake duck phenomenon <laughs> on the internet, which is like when the thing that like everybody loves for like 10 minutes turns out to be like problematic and then everybody like turns against him like immediately if you're not like an internet culture like denizen like the milkshake duck thing is like somebody tweets like a picture of like a duck eating a milkshake and everybody thinks it's like the cutest shit in the world and then the next tweet says we regret to inform you that milkshake duck is a racist yeah harry's Harry's someone who is so easy to turn against. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Milkshake. That would be a better book. Uh, I would read that. Besides Hermione, the only other person doing any, like, legwork in terms of, like, people's feelings and being able to think clearly about their friend is Hagrid. Yeah, I, I guess Harry. I guess it wasn't fair to say Hermione's the only character yeah. like, doing this work. Hagrid often is, too. In the yeah. last book... It's Hagrid who has to intervene in and tell Harry and Ron they're being terrible to Hermione. And once again, Hagrid's like, I know it's not you, man. Hagrid and Hermione have this kind of unique connection because they are the only two people that seem to like think that feelings are important and that like you should, you know, tend your friendships and relationships carefully. Yeah. And... I think in Hermione, to a, lar- to a large extent, it's, like, pretty innate. Like, I think she's, like, an emotionally intelligent person. But Hagrid, I think a lot of it is just born of loss. He's just, like, you, all you really have are your people. Just fucking be good to them, for the love of God. I think caring for creatures makes him uh, naturally empathic. Yeah, but I'm, I think that's kind of a chicken or the dragon egg question because, right. like, I think he cares for creatures because he's empathic. But, yeah. I mean, it's both. But you're right. He has, like, this unique connection to, I don't know, yeah, he's, like, uniquely empathetic. And he is the other one who's, like, I could tell that you don't want this. Also, he says this, like, really profoundly beautiful thing, which is, like, if you say you didn't do it, I believe you. Which is just, like, all we need from our friends. I believe what you tell me about yourself. Like, that's what friendship kind of is. So, props to Hagrid. Hagrid has unconditional love for Harry. Hagrid has unconditional love for all these kids. Hagrid even, like, I don't know, he's, like, not that much of a dick to the Slytherins, considering. Like, Hagrid wants the Slytherins to, like, have fun and learn about monsters. Yeah, he's given given Draco a little deserved pushback he's standing up for himself but it's still not out of bounds well so let's contrast that shall we (laughs) with the abominable behavior of one severus snape man snape should be fired for his treatment of hermione it is terrible at that i like actually shouted aloud at that line do you want to explain what happened yeah so hermione gets hit with an errant curse that's meant for draco from Harry's wand, and it gives her... It's kind of... It's horrifying, actually. Her front teeth just keep growing and growing. Yeah, it's it's really disturbing. Which, that, that like, kills beavers when they don't, like, chew on enough trees. Yeah, it cuts open their mouths Ugh. and they, like, bleed and, out. You know, to have them, like, keep growing. And uh, Goyle gets hit with a curse, too. Snape sends Goyle to the hospital. Ron says, what about Hermione? And Snape says, I see no difference. So Hermione bursts into tears. Yeah. Which, everything about this, disregarding a student's medical condition, 
insulting their appearance in the more, most brutal way. Why is he doing this? You know, I, I we kind of are given a window into understanding his treatment of Harry, but Hermione? I guess the Muggleborn thing? Maybe? But... I think he's just a dick. I don't know. The thing is, like, that's one of the... I mean, we talk about this, but one of my main reasons for, like, just not being able to accept the, like, inherent redeemability of Snape's story is, like, okay, fine, he was in on this, like, whole crazy lifelong plot, but, like, he's just abusive. Dude's got hate in his heart. Yeah, he's bad. He's a bad dude. He, like, doesn't keep children remotely safe and that's like his job i don't know i just yeah i have nor a- does he really teach them much even though he seems like he could be an amazing teacher like he's really smart he like is good at his subject but like he's too busy torturing kids to like teach them to make good potions they learn from hermione ironically <laughs> enough the only like really good potion they make yeah uh Dude, fuck that guy so much yeah. It's so awful. And poor Hermione is like self-conscious anyway. Like she's like an early teenage girl. She's like not the prettiest, which like you kind of forget now that the movies are out because like Emma Watson is just like a stunner from a really young age. They have to like make her hair kind of puffy, but like she's lovely. But the Hermione of the books is like meant to be like fairly plain. Yeah. Which I think it's good because, like, her inherent worth isn't based on her attractiveness. But, yeah, she's self-conscious. So, poor girl. All right. On to someone else who is horrible. We finally meet Rita Skeeter after being introduced to her byline. Here she is in her magenta-robed, talon-fingered glory, asking the hard questions. You won't mind, Harry, if I use a quick quotes quill. It leaves me free to talk to you normally. A what? said Harry. Rita Skeeter's smile widened. Harry counted three gold teeth. She reached again into her crocodile bag and drew out a long acid-green quill and a roll of parchment, which she stretched out between them on a crate of Mrs. Scour's all-purpose magical mess remover. She put the tip of the green quill into her mouth, sucked it for a moment with apparent relish, then placed it upright on the parchment, where it stood balanced on its point, quivering slightly. "'Testing! My name is Rita Skeeter, Daily Prophet Reporter.' Harry looked down quickly at the quill. The moment Rita Skeeter had spoken, the green quill had started to scribble, skidding across the parchment. "'Attractive blonde Rita Skeeter, 43, whose savage quill has punctured many inflated reputations.' "'Lovely,' said Rita Skeeter yet again, and she ripped the top piece of parchment off, crumpled it up, and stuffed it into her handbag. What do we think of Rita Skeeter, like, as a journalist? As a journalist. Um, well, I think we're meant to think she's a very bad one, or that journalism itself is terrible. I'm not sure what Joe is going for here all the way. She doesn't like the press. Right, which makes sense, because the press, the tabloid press, was not kind to her, remains unkind to her. Uh, and it's, like, the United Kingdom has, like, a pretty intense tabloid culture like i would say i'm not an expert on this but it seems more savage than even here and you know our tabloid culture is like pretty intense but uh at least in new york city with the post the thing that's interesting about rita though in this scene is you're right like one of the things that jk rowling consistently 
portrays as like sort of inherently bad in these books is the press like we don't get any good representations of the press or like sympathetic but that interview okay the utter like unethical nature of the actual like story aside she's like kind of portrayed to be asking like really unfair questions she's asking really good questions she has identified the thing that is by far most interesting about her story, and she's going after it like a fucking pro. Right. Like, obviously, Harry being in the tournament is the lead. Right. That makes so sense. It's like, right. And the, the. So you can understand Harry himself chafing at that, but like, to have the like wider world, like, as, vi- as envisioned by the author, be like, this is how journalists are like terrible and bloodthirsty and it's just like Rita's asking the right questions whether Harry thinks that his parents would be proud of him like that's a subjective question and like maybe not I mean it wouldn't like fucking hold up in court but that's an interesting question to ask Harry Potter and that's a question that like an audience of readers would want to know the answer to yeah so I guess if everybody hasn't figured this out already, uh, I work in media, and Heather has worked in media until in the very past. recently. Yeah. I did. So we have a point of view. Yeah, we have a point of view. So I chafe a little bit against the character of Rita Skeeter, although I actually really like her. I'm not like oh, I like. I think she's like making good choices, but she's fun. She's a yeah. She's a great kind of mini boss. Uh, yeah, little bad. Although, I don't even... Rita gets complicated later in book seven, a little bit. Like, she gets some... Yeah. But anyway, uh, one thing I'll say, just in my own experience, Rita is being very unethical in kind of her approach to Harry Potter, or I think she's being unethical. I'm not like... I don't really... I've never really done the celebrity journalism thing, which is kind of the closest to what Rita is doing right here, but it's not that cool to grab a 14-year-old or someone who doesn't can't really consent to the interview and pull them into a broom cupboard and then ambush them. Like when you have a vulnerable subject, you need to explain to them what's going on, that this will be in print and that what they're saying is fair game unless they say otherwise. Like you have to set like ground rules and, and expectations. Like you can't, you can do that to Dumbledore because he like, knows what's up and he's he'll be prepared to answer your questions and he's like kind of on an even footing with you but like harry potter has never been interviewed before which is kind of amazing actually since he's the most famous person in the wizarding world clearly wizard journalists are terrible at their jobs they don't get Uh, scooped well hilariously dealing with the press is basically the only part of being a triwizard champion that harry potter is actually ill prepared for yeah that's true the rest of it like feats of daring do he's like on it but like talking to a journalist he's like what the fuck is happening to me right now yeah There's, there's a lot of interesting writing about the kind of inherently predatory nature of reporting even if you're reporting with like good intentions jk is kind of interesting on the relationship between source and subject because it is inherently exploitive exploitative in in some ways there's this book the journalist and the murderer by janet malcolm which i would recommend everyone go read which kind of digs digs into that i think celebrity culture though is different and i know okay like harry like 
ooh, like, didn't ask to be a celebrity. Like, I know that's true. But, like, celebrity journalism is, like, an entirely, like, symbiotic relationship. I think, like, paparazzi mm-hmm. journalism. I don't, that's not journalism. But I think, like, the assaults of, like, paparazzi are wrong. But, like, famous people wouldn't be famous without someone to tell other people that they were famous. Journalists need famous people, but famous people also need journalists. And they, like, don't think they do. And they're, like, dicks about it. I don't know. Harry's right that Rita Skeeter is not, like, treating him well. But I don't think JK is more widely right about the, like, inherent evils and dangers of a press. And I think that she is, like, really uniquely positioned to be anti-media. Because the other thing that's interesting about her now that we can talk about is, like, she essentially eschews the press and connects directly with her fans because she's huge on Twitter. She doesn't fuck with the press much. Except in, like, sort of non-consensual ways when they, like, write about her or, like, fucking call her out for her tweets, which, like, often deserve to be called out. Like, I love the woman, but, like, I think she should spend a little less time on Twitter. (laughs) I think she has some dumb opinions. Yeah, but, I mean, we all have dumb opinions. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. You're right. You can't, like, blame someone famous for, like, occasionally thinking dumb things. We all do that. I, I don't know what I think about this. I think it's more complicated than she allows it to be. Yeah. Maybe we'll see some more, like, later. Because at the same time, she definitely understands the power of the press. Especially in books five and seven, where the press plays a hugely important role. You know? So, it's not that she doesn't think it's important. But all of her depictions of the press are so caricatured. And a lot of her characters aren't that caricatured. There are some, like, really, like, even the some of the villains have, like, the Barty Crouch Jr. senior relationship has this, like, really nuanced, kind of, like, understandable, like, tragic backstory. And Rita Skeeter is totally contextless and just this, like, total absurd caricature of, like, a tabloid journalist. And we just, like... We don't get anything more from her. I guess that's what like offends me about the character is that like Joe doesn't do that very often. She doesn't give us a lot of just like context free assholes. That's true. And I it's did- annoying to me that this like the one that there really is in this book is this like A, the depiction is like we've talked about this before I think fairly sexist. It's also, like, in line with her whole, like, ugly yeah, equals we bad. Yeah, we know Rita Skeeter's bad because she's an uggo. <laughs> and she's an uggo who thinks she's pretty, which that's just, like, such a jarring moment because uh. she says, my name is Rita Skeeter, Daily Prophet, and it says, like, attractive blonde Rita Skeeter, and you're supposed to think that, like, that's absurd one that of, she could have, like, self-esteem. One of the most skin-crawly moments is when she extends a mannish hand to Dumbledore. Like, mannish? Ugh. Yeah, it's not Joe. Nice. So uh, I just, it bugs me that this character is just so, so outsized, caricatured, nuance-free. I think much, much later in the future we'll get into this. I think she gets a little redemption in book seven. I think right but it's a little it's kind of small and kind of yeah. late. also up to this point she's one of the only characters 
with the guts to challenge Dumbledore on literally anything. It's true. Like, maybe Dumbledore does have some old-fashioned ideas, like adhering to crazy magical contracts that will get a student possibly killed. Well, that's the other thing. She's, like, kind of a muckraker. Like, she's one of the only people that will go up to people and be like, do you know this doesn't make sense? Do you know this seems crazy? I think it seems crazy. Where the fuck is Bertha Jorkins? Somebody needs to be asking these questions. Yeah. She's also basically the only person that acknowledges Harry's past. Yeah, like that's true. Like, she's the only person in any of these scenes that's like, let's talk about why you're famous. Because, weirdly, there's this huge, like, I don't know, dragon in the room. <laughs> and Rita Skeeter is the only one who's just like, so, you were traumatized. She's the first person that says traumatic. I think maybe in the books. Yeah, that's true. She's, like, the only person. And I'm not, this isn't, like, a full-throated defense of Rita Skeeter because I think, like, yeah, she's unethical as fuck. The quick quotes quill is a that's a disaster. She's lying. But she is the only person who is asking remotely relevant or valid questions about like Harry's past and his experiences and like how like being the victim of trauma might color his experiences as a young man. Yeah. She's like, "Hey, do you think it matters that your parents died?" And he's like, "Huh? Nobody ever fucking asked me that before." <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> Lovely, Rita. Speaking of the quick quotes, Quill, this is one of my favorite magical objects in the series. You can really tell that you were a journalist from that statement. It's it's incredible. Not only does it transcribe for you, I don't know how it works exactly. Like, is Rita charmed this thing so it's so in sync with her, like, head? Yeah, because it writes in her voice. Yeah, yeah, it writes in... It's like a chatbot or one of these... I don't know. They're like making algorithms now that can like automatically write sports stories and other sort of formulaic news articles. But it's like a thousand times better than yeah, that. Yeah, it's way better than I that. I also think that there's something kind of like chilling and like sexy about at the same time about the fact that she has to lick it uh-huh. before it like speaks for her. Like there's something like, I don't know, kind of like erotic about that like relationship between Rita and the Quill. It's so cool. It's great. This book should be called Harry Potter and the Quick Quotes Quill. Yes, it absolutely if should. If it's going to be named after any magical object, maybe the one that works. Yes. It does its job. The quill does its job. It absolutely does. What do you think about the wand measuring? Oh my god. I love that scene so much. It's so funny. Harry's not sure if his wand measures up to Cedric's. Also, his wand is covered with finger smudges mm-hmm, that he looks down at it in shame oh it's so phallic i mean obviously it's deliberate joe's not an idiot but this is the first time that it's been like his long hard rod <laughs> and you're just like oh christ oh uh, victor's got a chode wand no it's like thick and long though no i thought it was thicker and shorter than usual it's still ten and a half inches long. That's true. I mean, that's long enough. Harry's is 12, though. Yeah, that's true. Harry's, like, ch- ha- need not worry about his masculinity, apparently. <laughs> Fleur's got a wand, though. Yeah, I mean, it's not, like, a perfect one-to-one penis-to-wizard thing. But, like, it's just the imagery is really... <laughs> Cedric's is rather springy. Which, like, what does that mean? I don't Lucky know. Cho. Ooh, yeah, I guess not. Uh, that's fine. I hope they're using wizard protection. We still haven't talked about whether that exists. I mean, we have. We don't know the answer. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just funny. The end. Anyway, who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Cedric Diggory. 
Um, because of his springy wand? Because of his very springy wand. No. Um, Cedric's pretty cool about this whole thing. Cedric's not a dick. Springy wand aside. He's just always classy. He is classy. He doesn't lose his cool in any of these scenes, even though, like, his glory is being stolen by Harry. He's not being treated super well by this situation, regardless of whose fault it is. Cedric is the only one that doesn't kind of lose it. And he even kind of gently, teasingly is like, so, like, how'd you do it, really? Like, oh, I guess we're competing against each other again. He's not mean. He's not resentful. He's... He's confident in a way that's really appealing. He doesn't feel threatened by the fact that Harry Potter is in this thing because he thinks he can beat Harry. And under circumstances not influenced by Barty Crouch Jr., he would beat Harry. Harry gets a lot of help. Cedric is, at this point, probably a better wizard. Yeah. He's not better at specifically defeating Lord Voldemort, as we learn. Youch. I just think he, yeah, I think he handles this with a lot of maturity and I admire him as a person. Who's yours? Mine is Mr. Ollivander. I just love Ollivander. He's such a weirdo and he's kind of mysterious. He's super obsessed with everybody's wands. And we learn that he plucks those unicorn hairs himself. These are, these are like totally handmade he doesn't, like, buy that shit wholesale. It's locally sourced. Truly artisanal. And he makes wands shoot out wine and birds and flowers and shit. And it's just delightful. She's really good at those just little moments of kind of visual delight with magic. Like, when Fleur's makes flowers. Except why does Harry's make wine? That seems like the only one that doesn't have a lot to do with his character. Or does it? Harry's just a wino later in life. <laughs> Harry, Harry, I don't know if this is part of Cursed Child, but I think in reality, Harry probably drinks pretty heavily as an adult. Well, poor Daniel Radcliffe had a drinking problem. Oh, yeah, but I think he got better, right? Yeah, yeah, no, he talks quite frankly about it. Okay, you know, good for him. Being a child star is hard. Yeah, there's like great interviews with Okay. Daniel about his well, uh, travails. Well, I don't think that this is what. That's the not wine what. That's not what JK is referring to. He just. It's just Mr. Ollivander showing off. Dan, doing, we're proud of you. Doing the coolest stuff. Way with... to get past your childhood demons. Yeah. All right. This week's episode is brought to you by the Quick Quotes Quill because that story isn't going to write itself unless you buy a Quick Quotes Quill. <laughs> Please do all the things you do to slash with podcasts. Rate and review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Or you can also rate and review us on Facebook, which is also very nice. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I don't care if it's not Apple. I'm not a stan either way. You should also follow us and interact with us on social media. We are at Quibbler Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We read all your messages. We read all your tweets. We I think we respond to most of them. We, if we haven't, just ping us again. We're pretty we'll good at there. responding to stuff. Um, it touches us more than you can possibly know that anyone ever reaches out. And we're like, 
honestly eternally grateful for all of you so I hope that we show that gratitude by being pretty responsive on social tinyletter.com slash quibbler podcast is where you can sign up for infrequent email messages we uh, haven't done one in one like out. a month mm-hmm. more but I don't know it's been a crazy couple weeks you guys we're gonna write one we keep saying that someday we'll just send you a bunch of pictures of owls again so when that day comes you'll be happy that you signed up you really will Plus, we don't clog your inbox. It's just every so often you get this cool treat <laughs> of owls. Next week, we will be reading The Hungarian Horn Tale and The First Task. So we've been reading this book for what feels like an eternity, but simultaneously, I feel like we're rocketing through this thing. Like, we're already to the first task of the Triwizard. But it's not even Christmas yet, so. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's still like October. Ugh, exhausting. I guess it's November 1st now, technically. All Souls Day. Yeah. Well, high five a giant's good for us, y'all. Thanks, amigos! We must follow the rules, and the rules state clearly that those people whose names come out of the Goblet of Fire are bound to compete in the tournament. This is not Nam, this is bowling, there are rules. Has the whole world gone crazy? Am I the only one around here who gives a shit about the rules? Twelve and a quarter inches. Pleasantly springy, it's in fine condition. You treat it regularly? Polished it last night said Cedric, grinning. Harry looked down at his own. He could see finger marks all over it. He gathered a fistful of robe from his knee and tried to rub it surreptitiously. Several gold sparks shot out of the end of it. Fleur Delacour gave him a very patronizing look, and he desisted. Mr. Ollivander sent a stream of silver smoke rings across the room from the tip of Cedric's, pronounced himself satisfied, and then said, Mr. Crumb, if you please. Victor Crumb got up and slouched, round-shouldered and duck-footed toward Mr. Ollivander. He thrust out his and stood scowling, with his hands in the pockets of his robes. "'Hmm,' said Mr. Ollivander, "'rather thicker than one usually sees. Quite rigid. Ten and a quarter inches.' "'Ah, yes,' said Mr. Ollivander, his pale eyes suddenly gleaming. "'Yes, yes, yes.'